Section 23 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 8 Saxon went about her housework, greatly troubled. She no longer devoted herself to the making of pretties. The material cost too much money, and she did not dare. Bert's thrust had sunk home. It remained in her quivering consciousness like a shaft of steel that ever turned and rankled. She and Billy were responsible for this coming young life. Could they be sure, after all, that they could adequately feed and clothe it and prepare it for its way in the world? Where was the guarantee? She remembered dimly the blight of hard times in the past, and the plaints of fathers and mothers in those days returned to her with new significance. Almost could she understand Sarah's chronic complaining. Hard times were already in the neighborhood. Where lived the families of the shopmen who had gone out on strike? Among the small storekeepers, Saxon, in the course of the daily marketing, could sense the air of despondency. Light and geniality seemed to have vanished. Gloom pervaded everywhere. The mothers of the children that played in the streets showed the gloom plainly in their faces. When they gossiped in the evening, over front gates and on door stoops, their voices were subdued, and less of laughter rang out. Mary Donahue, who had taken three pints from the milkmen, now took one pint. There were no more family trips to the moving picture shows. Scrap meat was harder to get from the butcher. Nora Delaney, in the third house, no longer bought fresh fish for Friday. Salted codfish, not of the best quality, was now on her table. The sturdy children that ran out upon the street between meals with huge slices of bread and butter and sugar now came out with no sugar and with thinner slices spread more thinly with butter. The very custom was dying out, and some children already had desisted from piecing between meals. Everywhere was manifest a pinching and scraping, a tightening and shortening down of expenditure, and everywhere was more irritation. Women became angered with one another and with the children, more quickly than of yore. Saxon knew that Bert and Mary bickered incessantly. If she'd only realized I've got trouble of my own, Bert complained to Saxon. She looked at him closely and felt fear for him in a vague, numb way. His black eyes seemed to burn with continuous madness. The brown face was leaner, the skin drawn tightly across the cheekbones. A slight twist had come to the mouth, which seemed frozen into bitterness. The very carriage of his body and the way he wore his hat advertised a recklessness more intense than had been his in the past. Sometimes in the long afternoons, sitting by the window with idle hands, she caught herself reconstructing in her vision that folk migration of her people across the plains and mountains and deserts to the sunset land by the western sea. And often she found herself dreaming of the Arcadian days of her people, when they had not lived in cities nor been vexed with labor unions and employers' associations. She would remember the old people's tales of self-sufficientness, 
when they shot or raised their own meat, grew their own vegetables, were their own blacksmiths and carpenters, made their own shoes, yes, and spun the cloth of the clothes they wore. And something of the wistfulness in Tom's face she could see, as she recollected it, when he talked of his dream of taking up government land. A farmer's life must be fine, she thought. Why was it that people had to live in cities? Why had times changed? If there had been enough in the old days, why was there not enough now? Why was it necessary for men to quarrel and jangle and strike and fight all about the matter of getting work? Why wasn't there work for all? Only that morning she had shuddered with the recollection she had seen two scabs on their way to work, beaten up by the strikers, by men she knew by sight, and some by name, who lived in the neighborhood. It had happened directly across the street. It had been cruel, terrible, a dozen men on two. The children had begun it by throwing rocks at the scabs and cursing them in ways children should not know. Policemen had run upon the scene with drawn revolvers, and the strikers had retreated into the houses and through the narrow alleys between the houses. One of the scabs, unconscious, had been carried away in an ambulance. The other, assisted by special railroad police, had been taken away to the shops. At him, Mary Donahue, standing on her front stoop, her child in her arms, had hurled such vile abuse that it had brought the blush of shame to Saxon's cheeks. On the stoop of the house on the other side, Saxon had noted Mercedes, in the height of the beating up, looking on with a queer smile. She had seemed very eager to witness, her nostrils dilated and swelling like the beat of pulses as she watched. It had struck Saxon at the time that the old woman was quite unalarmed and only curious to see. To Mercedes, who was so wise in love, Saxon went for an explanation of what was the matter with the world. But the old woman's wisdom in affairs industrial and economic was cryptic and unpalatable. La, la, my dear, it is so simple. Most men are born stupid. They are the slaves. A few are born clever. They are the masters. God made men so, I suppose. Then how about God in that terrible beating across the street this morning? I'm afraid he was not interested, Mercedes smiled. I doubt he even knows that it happened. I was frightened to death, Saxon declared. I was made sick by it. And yet you, I saw you, you looked on as cool as you please, as if it were a show. It was a show, my dear. Oh, how could you? La, la. I have seen men killed. It is nothing strange. All men die. The stupid ones die like oxen. They know not why. It is quite funny to see. They strike each other with fists and clubs and break each other's heads. It is gross. They are like a lot of animals. They are like dogs wrangling over bones. Jobs are bones, you know. Now if they fought for women or ideas or bars of gold or fabulous diamonds, it would be splendid. But no, they're only hungry and fight over scraps for their stomach. Oh, if I could only understand, Saxon murmured, 
her hands tightly clasped in anguish of incomprehension and vital need to know. There is nothing to understand. It is clear as print. There have always been the stupid and the clever, the slaves and the master, the peasant and the prince. There always will be. But why? Why is a peasant a peasant, my dear? Because he is a peasant. Why is a flea a flea? Saxon tossed her head fretfully. Oh, but my dear, I have answered. The philosophies of the world can give no better answer. Why do you like your man for a husband rather than any other man? Because you like him that way, that is all. Why do you like? Because you like. Why does fire burn and frost bite? Why are there clever men and stupid men, masters and slaves, employers and working men? Why is black black? Answer that, and you answer everything. But it is not right that men should go hungry and without work when they want to work, if only they can get a square deal, Saxon protested. Oh, but it is right, just as it is right, that stone won't burn like wood, that sea sand isn't sugar, that thorns prick, that water is wet, that smoke rises, that things fall down and not up. But such doctrine of reality made no impression on Saxon. Frankly, she could not comprehend. It seemed like so much nonsense. They have no liberty and independence, she cried passionately. One mad is not as good as another. My child has not the right to live that a rich mother's child has. Certainly not, Mercedes answered. Yet all my people fought for these things, Saxon urged, remembering her school history and the sword of her father. Democracy, the dream of the stupid peoples. Oh, la, la, my dear, democracy is a lie, an enchantment to keep the work brutes content, just as religion used to keep them content. When they groaned in their misery and toil, they were persuaded to keep on in their misery and toil by pretty tales of land beyond the skies, where they would live famously and fat while the clever ones roasted in everlasting fire. Ah, how the clever ones must have chuckled! And when that lie wore out, and democracy was dreamed, the clever ones saw to it that it should be in truth a dream, nothing but a dream. The world belongs to the great and clever. But you are the working people, Saxon charged. The old woman drew herself up and almost was angry. I of the working people? My dear, because I had the misfortune with money invested, because I am old and can no longer win the brave young men, because I have outlived the men of my youth, and there is no one to go to, because I live here in the ghetto with Barry Higgins and prepare to die, why, my dear, I was born with the masters, and have trod all my days on the necks of the stupid. I have drunk rare wines and sat at feasts that would have supported this neighborhood for a lifetime. Dick Golden and I, it was Dickie's money, but I could have had it. Dick Golden and I dropped 400,000 francs in a week's play at Monte Carlo. He was a Jew, but he was a spender. In India, I have worn jewels that could have saved the lives of 10,000 families dying before my eyes. 
You saw them die and did nothing? Saxon asked aghast. I kept my jewels, la la, and was robbed of them by a brute of a Russian officer within the year. And you let them die? Saxon reiterated. They were cheap spawn. They fester and multiply like maggots. They meant nothing, nothing, my dear, nothing. No more than your work people mean here, whose crowning stupidity is their continuing to beget more stupid spawn for the slavery of the masters. So it was that while Saxon could get little glimmering of common sense from others, from the terrible old woman she got none at all. Nor could Saxon bring herself to believe much of what she considered Mercedes romancing. As the weeks passed, the strike in the railroad shops grew bitter and deadly. Billy shook his head and confessed his inability to make head or tails of the trouble that were looming on the labor horizon. I don't get the hang of it, he told Saxon. It's a mix-up. It's like a roughhouse with the lights out. Look at us teamsters. Here we are. The talk just starting of going out on sympathetic strike for the mill workers. They've been out a week. Most of their places is filled. And if us teamsters keep on hauling the mill work, the strike's lost. Yet you didn't consider striking for yourselves when your wages were cut, Saxon said with a frown. Oh, we wasn't in position then. But now the Frisco Teamsters and the whole Frisco Waterfront Confederation is liable to back us up. Anyway, we're just talking about it, that's all. But if we do go out, we'll try to get back that ten percent cut. It's rotten politics, he said another time. Everybody's rotten. If we'd only wise up and agree to pick out honest men. But if you and Bert and Tom can't agree, how do you expect all the rest to agree? Saxon asked. It gets me, he admitted. It's enough to give a guy the willies thinking about it. And yet it's plain as the nose on your face. Get honest men for politics, and the whole thing's straightened out. Honest men make honest laws, and them honest men get their dues. But Bert wants to smash things, and Tom smokes his pipe and dreams pipe dreams about by and by when everybody votes the way he thinks. But this by and by ain't the point. We want things now. Tom says we can't get them now, and Bert says we ain't never going to get them. What can a fellow do when everybody's of different minds? Look at the socialists themselves. They're always disagreeing and splitting up and firing each other out of the party. The whole thing's a bug house, that's what, and I almost get dippy myself thinking about it. The point I can't get out of my mind is that we want things now. He broke off abruptly and stared at Saxon. What is it, he asked, his voice husky with anxiety. You ain't sick or, or anything? She had pressed her hand to her heart but the startle and fright in her eyes was changing into a pleased intentness, while on her mouth was a little mysterious smile. She seemed oblivious to her husband, as if listening to some message from afar and not for his ears. Then wonder and joy transfused her face, and she looked at Billy, and her hand went out to his. "'It's life,' she whispered. "'I felt life.' 
I'm so glad, so glad. The next evening, when Billy came home from work, Saxton caused him to know and undertake more of the responsibilities of fatherhood. I've been thinking it over, Billy, she began, and I'm such a healthy, strong woman that it won't have to be very expensive. There's Martha Skelton. She's a good midwife. Billy shook his head. Nothing doing in that line, Saxon. You're going to have Doc Hentley. He's Bill Murphy's Doc, and Bill swears by him. He's an old cuss, but he's a waz. She can find Maggie Donahue, Saxon argued, and look at her and her baby. Well, she won't confine you. Not so as you can notice it. But the doctor will charge twenty dollars, Saxon pursued, and make me get a nurse, because I haven't any woman folk to come in. But Martha Skelton would do everything, and it would be so much cheaper. Billy gathered her tenderly in his arms and laid down the law. Listen to me, little wife. The Roberts family ain't on the cheap. Never forget that. You've got to have the baby. That's your business, and it's enough for you. My business is to get the money and take care of you, and the best ain't none too good for you. Why, I wouldn't run the chance of the teeniest accident happening to you for a million dollars. It's you that counts, and dollars is dirt. Maybe you think I like that kid some. I do. Why, I can't get him out of my head. I'm thinking about him all day long. If I get fired, it'll be his fault. I'm clean doty over him. But just the same, Saxon, honest to God, before I'd have anything happen to you, break your little finger, even if I'd seen him dead and buried first. That'd give you something of an idea of what you mean to me. Why, Saxon, I had the idea that when folks got married, they just settled down, and after a while, their business was to get along with each other. Maybe it is that way with other people, but it ain't that way with you and me. I love you more and more every day. Right now I love you more than when I began talking to you five minutes ago. And you won't have to get a nurse. Doc Hantley will come every day, and Mary will come in and do the housework and take care of you and all that, just as you'll do it for her if she ever needs it. As the days and weeks passed, Saxon was possessed by a conscious feeling of proud motherhood in her swelling breasts. So essentially a normal woman was she that motherhood was a satisfying and passionate happiness. It was true that she had her moments of apprehension, but they were so momentary and faint that they tended, if anything, to give zest to her happiness. Only one thing troubled her, and that was the puzzling and perilous situation of labor which no one seemed to understand, herself least of all. They're always talking about how much more is made by machinery than by the old way, she told her brother Tom. Then, with all the machinery we've got now, why don't we get more? Now you're talking, he answered. It wouldn't take you that long to understand socialism. But Saxon had a mind to the immediate needs of things. Tom, how long have you been a socialist? Eight years. And you haven't got anything by it. But we will, in time. At that rate you'll be dead first, she challenged. Tom sighed. 
I'm afraid so. Things move so slow. Again he sighed. She noted the weary, patient look in his face, the bent shoulders, the labor-gnarled hands, and it all seemed to symbolize the futility of his social creed. End of chapter 23